Well, if you're not already there, open up your Bible to Psalm 107. Again, Father, we pray your blessing on the Word. We just seek your presence here tonight. We are blessed ourselves just to come into your presence. Which we know isn't a matter of coming into this barn, Lord. It's a matter of turning to you. It's a matter of pausing and looking to you. It's a matter of recognizing and acknowledging that you are already present in our lives. That you have chosen to never leave us or forsake us. To be with us always, even to the very end of the age. And Lord, it's a concept I I still hunger to completely grasp. How even in the times of our lives where we're distracted and and focused on other things, that you are there and present with us and your watchful care and your eye is on your children. And this is a marvelous thing and incredibly comforting for us to recognize and realize. So thank you, Lord, for being with us. Thank you for gathering us together here tonight in this time of fellowship and worship and study of your word. And may it be a blessed time, Father. To the glory of your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Psalm 107 tonight. And with Psalm 107 we begin book 5 of the Psalms. Five books in all and we are here at the fifth and final book. Which covers Psalm 107 to Psalm 150. So there's still as many chapters to go as there are in most of the books in the Bible. But Psalm 107 to 150, book 5, parallels book 5 of the Torah, and that being the book of Deuteronomy. And I said Sunday morning I would explain tonight why it parallels Deuteronomy. But to do that I need to explain something to you all, and that's that Moses didn't call it Deuteronomy. That name was added later on, some 13 centuries after the book of Deuteronomy as we know it was written, when the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures was brought together around 285 B.C., called the Septuagint, and when the Jewish leaders decided to rewrite this and translate it into Greek, they used the word Deuteronomion for that fifth book in the Torah. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomion, Deutero meaning second in the Greek, nomion meaning law. So the Greek version or the Greek translation is entitled Second Law. Not because it's another law, but because they see it as a second telling of the law. Now I I find that an unfortunate name. Because it almost implies that it's just a retelling of what we've already covered. And there are those who buy that or believe that. Well, you go through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and there's the first telling and then you get to Deuteronomy and you're just going to retell the whole thing again. Well, if you were around here at the time, we studied through Deuteronomy and found it to be far more than simply a second telling of the law or a reiteration of what we'd already seen. You see, God doesn't waste His time on vain repetition. We talked about that on Sunday with Psalm 108 being a a putting together of two other psalms into one. Two great tastes that go great together. Remember that? And so God doesn't just reiterate things for no purpose whatsoever. He always has a reason for a restatement. But Deuteronomy is far more than that. The book of Deuteronomy, Kyle and Delich in their commentary write, it was given to make the contents of the covenant or the law intelligible to all the people and to impress them upon their hearts. And so throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you hear Moses saying, write this in your hearts. You know, put it on your foreheads and on your hand. 
Take it with you. Put it on your doorpost. Wherever you go, as you go in and you go out, as you lie down, as you get up, as you're with your children, put this law into your hearts. And it was written for that reason, to impress the Word of God into the heart of the people. Deuteronomy. The Lord intends that for us. Your presence here tonight, again, and I I know I've said this many times, but your decision to continue week in and week out to be here, to be in the Word, is exactly what God desires for you. As much as you may be blessed, it blesses Him to see His children following through and fulfilling His desire, His intention, which is to get His Word deep into our hearts. Not skirting across the surface. But as we talked about Sunday, the steadfast heart is a heart that's impressed by the Word of God. A heart where the Word of God is embedded. So the Hebrew title for Deuteronomy is not Deuteronomy, it's Hebrew Devarim. Devarim, simply meaning words. The book of words. The book of the words of God. Because the book of Deuteronomy emphasizes the perfection of the Word of God. You're going to see this restated many times in book 5 of the Psalms. The focus on and the return to the perfection, the wonder, the glory, the joy of the Word of God. Psalm 119 is in this section, which goes on and on about the wonders of the Word of God. Psalm 119, 105, that famous verse, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 138, verse 2 is in this section, reading, For you have magnified your Word according to all your name. King James translates it, you have magnified your word above all your name. Because that word can mean according to or above. Either way, the the word of God is magnified either next to his name or even above his name. Absolutely astounding, the perfection of the word of God. But also, the praise of the Lord God himself is emphasized in the book of Deuteronomy. It's emphasized in book 5 of the Psalms as well. In this section, we're going to come across... The Hallel Psalms. Hallel, meaning Psalms of Praise. Psalm 113 to 118 are the Hallel Psalms. And we'll cover those in a few short weeks. The Psalms of Ascent are in this section. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. Those songs sung by the people as they went up to Jerusalem for those days of festival and feasting. Both those are in this section. And finally, like the Song of Moses and the ending of Deuteronomy, we're going to see Book 5 of the Psalms crescendo to an unparalleled panorama of praise as the book finally concludes. So you see there's a definite parallel here, a pattern to Deuteronomy, Devarim, the words, and Book 5 of the Psalms. Now tonight, with the beginning of this new section, we begin a new series within this section, running from Psalm 107 to Psalm 111. Now this series is seen as a series because of when it was written, that particular time. And again, we mentioned this on Sunday. These Psalms, Psalm 107 through Psalm 111, were grouped together for a certain time in Israel's history. And that's important to remember. Like the book of Deuteronomy, the children of Israel delivered from Egypt, done with their wilderness wanderings, are finally ready to enter the promised land. That's where you end up at the end of Deuteronomy. Well, here in book 5, it begins with a similar time for Israel, not when they were out of Egypt delivered and ready to enter the promised land, but when they're delivered from Babylon. Now coming out of Babylonian captivity, finally ready to re-enter the promised land. And so these opening psalms in book 5 are written in that time period. 
And I love that because what that says is these psalms are psalms for a people at the end of their deliverance and on the cusp of a new life. Now think about that. At the end of their deliverance, on the verge or on the cusp of a brand new life, is that not where we stand tonight? That's where we are. As followers of Jesus, we're at the end of our deliverance. Having been delivered from sin, from the bondage of sin, on the cusp, on the verge of our new life in Christ Jesus, this is where we stand ready to go, a delivered people ready to go to the promised land. A delivered people on the verge of heading into that place He has prepared for us. Romans 13.11, Paul said, It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. I just love that verse. Because what that means is every moment of my life, I'm closer than I was the moment before. Now that may seem like simple math to you, but I like simple math. I like it to be easy. It means when I wake up in the morning, I am that much closer. My son Hayden wrote a, wrote a poem. You're going to read it, Rachel. It's uh, for his creative writing class. And it's a poem about the 25 days of December leading up to Christmas. And each day he has something to say about it leading up to Christmas. And just how, you know, it's almost like the beating drum leading to that final moment and the kids just getting more and more excited. And that's where we are. Every day, one step closer. Every hour, one hour closer to that time when we get to go home. When as delivered people, we get to enter the promised land. And Jesus said in Luke 21, 28, When you see these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It's a little background for you. Let's go on into Psalm 107 at the beginning here at Book 5. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to an to an inhabited to go to an inhabited city. So Psalm 107 opens up as a processional psalm. Psalm 106 that we looked at last week, concluding book four, is a confessional psalm. You know, it's a psalm of the of Israel asking, "Please, Lord, gather us back into your land." Confessing their sin, confessing their faithlessness and their fickleness. Lord, please bring us back into the land. Well, now with Psalm 107, it is. Processional, They're entering the land. Now, there are three ways we can look at this psalm. And I'm, I'm going to try not to confuse you because it, it kind of weaves around a bit here. But three ways we can consider this psalm as we look at it. The first way is simply by organization. By organization. It's kind of boring, but it's one of the ways you can do it. Verses 1 through 7 are the introduction of the psalm. And then after verses 1 through 7, you have four stanzas... In the psalm, each one beginning with a chorus, and then a stanza, and then a chorus, and then a stanza, and that happens four times. So you've got 1 through 7 is the introduction, verses 8 through 14 being stanza number 1, 15 through 20, stanza number 2, 21 through 30 is stanza number 3, and finally 31 through 43 is the fourth stanza. 
And with each one of those stanzas, verse 8, verse 15, verse 21, verse 31, are the chorus of the song that's repeated as the song goes on. Now that's one way to look at it, organizationally. But more important than the organization of this psalm is the application. Now we use this a lot. This may sound familiar to you, but I've discovered that in studying the Bible, this threefold application is a great way to draw out the depth and the meaning of Scripture. The historical, the prophetical, and the personal meaning behind any passage. So when I study, that's where I tend to go. What was happening historically? Is there something prophetic being stated in this passage? And finally, what does this say to me personally? And we're going to look at it that way as well. Organizationally, applicationally. And there's a third way I'll get to in just a minute. So, first off, as we consider this application, we'll look at it historically. The old rabbis considered Psalm 107, all the way through Psalm 111, really on to 113, to have been written during the early days of the returning exiles. So it's that period of time coming back from Babylon. And Psalm 107 itself may very well have been sung during the laying of the foundation of the second temple. This psalm. Now, why do you believe that? Well, look at verse 1 again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. And I want to lay your finger in there and go over back to Ezra, chapter 3, verse 10. It says, When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. Did you hear it? There it is. Beginning of Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. So Psalm 107 begins with the same phrase these priests in their apparel are singing. In fact, several psalms do. Psalm 100, verse 5. Psalm 106, verse 1. Psalm 107, verse 1. Psalm 118, verse 1. And Psalm 131, verse 1. And those are probably all in the margin of your Bible. But they sing this opening to Psalm 107, and there's a great parallel here. Now go on further. It says, All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Some who never thought they would see this day, and yet here they are. And the temple's being rebuilt. Yet, verse 12, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men, who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. It's an amazing contrast, a very emotional time for those exiles. They lay the foundation, and the young men and those who hadn't seen the old temple are all standing around going, Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! This is wonderful! And the old men who remembered Solomon's temple are weeping. Oh, this is nothing like it used to be. This is not what we used to see. Oh, this is, this is not the old temple. The older people realizing... Are we ever going to get back there? To the glory days of Solomon, look at this. 
And so there's weeping at the same time that there's shouts of joy. And it's a great contrast. The old men remembering the old glory. And the young men excited for the new glory. And I read that and I think, you know, may we never be so attached to the glories gone by that we miss the glories coming. The Lord always takes His gang from glory to glory. It always gets better with the Lord. This is how He functions. This is what He calls us to. To be transformed ever daily from, from glory to glory. And what's amazing about the second temple, the second temple, though it was not as glorious as Solomon's was at first, this temple would be more glorious. And not because of Herod's retrofit. Oh, Herod's going to come along later and take the second temple and begin to rebuild and restructure, trying to buy the hearts of the Jewish people. It doesn't work. And the temple is glorious from a physical perspective. It's beautiful. It's overlaid with gold. It's an amazing edifice. But that's not where the glory is. The glory is in this. The prophet Haggai, he wrote in chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Haggai, or Haggai, however you want to say his name, was present there at that time with the exiles. And the Lord promises, I'm going to fill this house with glory. Come, desire of nations, come. Fixing us our heavenly home. We sing in the Christmas carol. Hark the herald angels sing. Speaking of Jesus, the desire of all nations. And He would fill the second temple. He would enter it. Remember, Jesus went into the second temple Himself. He walked in the courts. He taught there in the courts of the second temple. He cleansed the second temple. He healed in the second temple. Not the first. Now the glory of God was present in the first. He was also present in the second. In the person of Jesus Christ. From glory to glory. And the Lord wants to take us to even greater glory. Well, that's, that's historically where this psalm begins. What about prophetically? Is there something going on in the psalm prophetically? Gang, this psalm speaks of, more, uh, of a day more intense than any Israel has yet known. Look again there at verse 3. It says, gathered from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. Well, that's bigger than coming home from Babylon. That's bigger than coming up from Egypt. They came up from the south out of Egypt. Well, they came from the east, from Babylon. This says they're going to come from the west and they're going to come from the north. This is a global regathering that's being talked about here. Something that has, had never happened until this generation. Where the dispersed Jews, north, west, east, south, from all over the world, are being regathered in a fulfillment of biblical prophecy back into the land. Uh, Verses 4 and 5, talking about them wandering in the wilderness in a desert region. They didn't find an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. This describes a global dispersion. You see, while the people wandered in the wilderness the first time, they were not hungry and thirsty. They were taken care of. Their clothes didn't even wear out. Across 40 years, the soles of their feet did just fine as the Lord led them and provided for them day in and day out water from the rock, manna in the mornings, even quail till it was coming out their nostrils. We won't get back into that. Verse 6 says, They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. Gang, this deliverance is from the greatest distress 
they will have ever felt and it hasn't happened yet. We're talking about a deliverance from tribulation. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 Alas for that day is great there's none like it. It's a time of Jacob's distress but he will be saved from it. And then verse 7 Verse 7 talks about Him leading them by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. That word straight there is literally level. And what happens at the time of great earthquakes and massive topographical changes we've talked about there in the coming of Jesus is the way will be made level. There will be a level path into Jerusalem. And this is all, I believe, pointing prophetically to a greater time. But the psalm also opens up personally. Don't miss this. Look at verse 2 again. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Hey, if you're the redeemed of the Lord, say so. Say so. Let the redeemed say so. This is the simple key to fulfilling our great commission. I'm gonna, someday I'm going to set up a whole system, a whole pattern of evangelism training seminars. And I'm going to send out flyers and I'm going to get a lot of hype. I'm going to get someone to invest a lot of money into it, make it real big looking and, and hyped, and send out videos, maybe DVD announcements of this great seminar. I'm going to come into town, I'm going to sit down, invite throngs of people, I know it's going to work, throngs of people into a building, and I'm going to say, here it is, the key to evangelism in this century. Say so! Have a great day. Bye-bye. <laughs> it is that simple. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. It's not let the redeemed think so. You know, let, let the redeemed believe so. Let the redeemed consider so. Let the redeemed say so. Hey, I'm a Christian. And I am proud to be a child of the living God. And you know what else? I'm proud of the church. We mess it up. We're human beings. We're forgiven sinners. We're bound to mess things up and get things wrong. But I am not ashamed of the Lord and I am not ashamed of His body. This is what I'm a part of. And I have chosen to be part of the redeemed. Let the redeemed say so. Paul said in Romans 1.15, For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so with redemption on our lips and declaring His wonder in the presence of the sons of men, we continue on. Verse 8, the first chorus of the psalm. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. And that's important. Listen to that again. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness. That's the primary reason we worship. But there's a secondary reason we worship. And for His wonders to the sons of men. Something I I think perhaps the church has forgotten in this day and age is that worship is not something we dilute for the seeker. It's not some kind of pop music that that we perform to try and entice the seeker to come in. No, we worship the Lord unashamedly, unabashed worship, praise to the Father. And when someone comes in who doesn't believe or who perhaps is curious about this, what do they see? They see God's people worshiping Him. And it declares to them what we're declaring to Him. 
His greatness, His glory, His grandeur. As people watch believers worship, it speaks a greater testimony than us trying to water things down and and make it so that it's more palatable. I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about people understanding communion when we take it every Sunday. I want them to see the example. It, by the way, let me remind you, is why the kids are in here. I've had people again ask me, you know, I mean, it starts to get a little rambunctious. I know. But those children need to see all of the adults, week in, week out, worshiping and sharing in communion together. It teaches them. It's us just walking out what God has called us to while the world watches, while our children watch. And so again, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. By word and by deed as well. Verse 9. Having said so, For He has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul He has filled with what is good. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, He humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled, and there was none to help. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. It was to a dark world that Jesus came. It was to a dark land, Israel, that Jesus came. To dark hearts that Jesus came. I love this verse. I've quoted it many times. Matthew 4.15 The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them a light had dawned. It was into darkness that Jesus came. Then it says He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, the light coming in, flooding into this world. Historically, Jesus came to a people in darkness. Prophetically, Jesus came to His own people who were walking in darkness. He will come to His own people who are yet walking in darkness. Personally, personally, He came to you in your darkness. He came to me when I was walking in darkness as well. Now, I I said there were three ways to consider this psalm. And the first one was by organization. You can follow the intro and the stanzas of the psalm, and it's a little literary and a little boring. You can do it by application, and that's more exciting. Again, looking at the historical and the prophetical and the personal ramifications. But this psalm is great to look at the third way. And that is by illustration. By illustration. Because what we see in this psalm, and you've already seen it without perhaps recognizing it, are four illustrations, four pictures that are drawn here that are beautiful illustrations, both historically and prophetically of Israel, but also personally of all people. You'll notice in this psalm that it's not Israel that's called out. It's not Israel that's singled out. There almost seems a broader reach to this psalm than simply for the people of Israel. And so the psalmist writes four different illustrations, two of which we've already seen. The first one is a picture of the disoriented traveler. If you go back to verse 4 and read through verse 9, which we're not going to do, but verse 4 says they wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. And all the way down through verse 9, you get this picture of a, of a person wandering, disoriented, not sure how to find the way home. Where's the inhabited city? I don't know how to get there. 
And so this disoriented traveler who needs a guide, that's the first picture. The second picture is a depressed prisoner. Verses 10 through 16, a depressed prisoner who needs a pardon. Who needs to be pardoned to get out of the prison in which they're in. Continuing on, verse 15, let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. For He has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. And so verses 10 through 16 illustrate this depressed prisoner, bummed out and chained up, having no way of escape, no way out. I I think of Peter there in Acts chapter 12, in the midst of the prison there in Jerusalem. What must have been going through his mind? This is early in the days of the church, and he's seen amazing things. He's done amazing things. But now he's in the midst of this prison, and suddenly in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake, and he looks down and his shackles have fallen off. And the doors open. And there's an angel going, Come on, let's go. When an angel says, let's go, it's a good idea just to go ahead and go. So Peter follows the angel all the way through and out and into the street. Next thing he knows, he looks around, he's by himself, he's in the street. Free. I think of Paul and Silas there in in Philippi, in the bowels of that prison, in the middle of the night, singing, just singing praises to God. They're in shackles and the other prisoners are all listening to these two knuckleheads worshiping a God who let them go to prison until an earthquake happens and the shackles fall off and the doors bust open and the jailer thinks, that's it, I'm dead. And Paul says, no, 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 wait, 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 we're all here. And the jailer asks that great question, what, what do I need to do to get saved? Now he may have been thinking physically, by the way, because it was his responsibility to keep all the prisoners, and if even one escaped, he would have to pay for it with his life. So he may have just been asking, how do I get saved from this situation? You guys are all free, and I know there's no way one guy is going to stop everybody from running, so how do I get saved? And Paul immediately jumps on it. I'll tell you how I get saved. Believe in Jesus Christ. (laughs) And that night, the jailer and his entire family get freed from the prison of sin. Depressed prisoners, needing a pardon, receiving a pardon, an imminent and immediate pardon. And do you know, do you realize that whatever prison you may be in right now, you can be delivered? Do we understand that the significance of this? Our pardon was secured at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Our pardon was signed on the dotted line. Our pardon was pronounced from the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, He could just as well have said, all our pardons. The great pardon of the day. And come to think of it, it's not just your pardon, or my pardon. Everybody's pardon has been secured. Everybody's pardon. Even non-believers. Okay, wait a minute. You're getting a little universalist here, Pastor Rick. Let me explain something that I think is absolutely biblical. The pardon of God is universal. God's pardon is universal. Unlimited in any way, shape, or form. It's our acceptance that limits the pardon. Jesus doesn't have to go back to the cross for a single unbeliever. It's done. 
signed on the dotted line, the paper that says your pardon is sitting there. Which makes it ironic that so many people remain in prison. When their pardon is sitting there waiting, all they have to do is pick it up and walk out the door. That is the freedom that Christ offers. That's how amazingly, truly universal salvation would be if mankind would universally receive it. The only line there is where humanity rebels and says, I'm not picking that up. I don't want that piece of paper. I don't want to be part. I'd rather sit in my cell, thank you. I see the doors open and the, and the guards standing there going, well, here you go. I don't want it. I'm going to get out on my own. I've got a little file and I've been working on the window and I'm going to get myself out. And it's absolutely ridiculous when the pardon has been offered. And herein is the free will choice of every man and woman. Jesus said in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Wrath abides because people sit in the prison cell and say, I don't want out. And meanwhile, Jesus is saying, but I've offered you pardon. Everything's been done. Will you receive it? And so, in this psalm, we see the distressed traveler who is guided home. We see the depressed prisoner who is released in joy, all because of a pardon available to all people. Oh, the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. The perfection of the blood of Jesus that is so great, there's not a single person who wouldn't be saved if they would simply say, I want to be saved. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, John says he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now some have read that verse and said, see, it's universal salvation. Well, that's right. Jesus universally offers salvation to the entire world. The question is, who's going to receive it? Who's going to say, I want that? I do believe in universal pardon. Whether the pardon's accepted, that's another thing. Now we come to the third illustration, still partially in the second stanza, but I'm not so concerned with stanzas anymore. Illustration number three, the dying patient. Look at verse 17. Fools! because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of death. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. What does the dying patient need to be healed? His Word. His Word. Look at verse 20. He sent His Word and healed them. What the world needs now is the Word, the Word, the Word. Not love, sweet love. Granted, the Word is love, and love is contained within the Word. But what the world needs is the Word of God, the Devarim. The words of God spoken. The Word is what brings healing. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 Note that. He sent His Word and healed them. Well, His Word is Jesus whom He sent to heal the world. And this psalm is talking about Jesus. In fact, you'll note this, that all the way through each one of these illustrations, Jesus is the answer. 
Jesus is the one who helps the disoriented traveler get home. He is the one who brings the depressed prisoner out of prison. He's the one who heals the dying patient. And watch as the Word made flesh emerges even more clearly in the psalm. Verse 21. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindnesses and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. Remember the thank offering? We talked about the peace offering. That's what that is there. And tell of His works with joyful singing. Those who go down to the sea in ships. We're coming up on the fourth illustration. Who do business on great waters. They have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. Did you hear about the cruise ship down in Antarctica? (laughs) This cruise ship was was nailed by a 30-foot rogue wave. Knocked out the engine. And there are 150 people on a cruise ship now drifting. And the Navy have been sent down and they're kind of following alongside and they have just enough power to be going about five miles an hour. Those people are having a good time right now. Their soul melted away in misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were, note the word, hushed. And then they were glad because they were quiet. So He guided them to their desired haven. Fourth illustration and my favorite one, the drunken sailor. The drunken sailor. What do you do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? They came to Jesus, drunk with fear, out of their minds with terror, reeling in the boat, crying out, Save us, Lord! We're perishing! Matthew chapter 8 tells us. And He said to them, Why are you afraid, men of little faith? Now, you got to get the sense of what's going on in the boat on the Sea of Galilee at that time. The boat is rocking wildly. Waves are coming over the sides of the boat. The apostles are holding on for dear life. They shake Jesus awake. They say, save us, Lord. And He stops for a Bible lesson. (laughs) It's just hilarious to me. If I had been the Lord and I woke up to that, I would have gone, whoa, whoa, hush. And then I would have said, what's the problem, guys? Jesus is going, what are you guys afraid of here? What's going on? How come you're... Men of little faith? And then he says, Hush, be still. Mark 4.39 tells us. Total call. What do you do with a drunken sailor? What do you do when you are sin sick and you are reeling from perhaps drunken foolishness or fear or lostness or confusion? If Jesus can calm a sea, He can steer you into a safe haven as well. He's the answer. Jesus is the answer to all these illustrations. The distressed traveler, the depressed prisoner, the dying or dead patient who He raises to life, and the drunken sailor. And if you're in any of these places tonight, deliverance is by and through Jesus Christ alone. Now, if all of us here have been delivered then let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
And if you have not been delivered, then be delivered tonight by the name of Jesus Christ. Now as the psalm concludes, remember, this was sung by the exiles returning, coming back into the land as the temple foundations were being laid. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness, verse 31, and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol Him also in the congregation of the people and praise Him at the seat of the elders. He changes rivers into a wilderness and springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. Have you been watching the wildfires? Finally got them under control, the wildfires in northern Israel. And it's tragic. We visited the very place where those fires are burning or have been burning so hotly, Carmel. And it's a beautiful area. When we go back, I have no doubt we're going to see some devastation from this fire. It's been called Israel's Katrina. 12,000 acres were torched. In that 12,000 acres, 5 million trees were lost. And in Israel, that's a big deal. In the Northwest, 5 million trees. I think I've got about 4.5 in my backyard. But in Israel, 5 million trees. And gang, why that's such a big deal is there in the Mediterranean, it affects the climate. It affects everything. To lose 5 million trees means the climate is going to immediately begin to shift right there in that part of Israel, in that region of the world. What happened? Israel's Katrina. People are asking the question, how in the world can Israel, that is such a go-it-alone state... You know, always willing to stand on their own. How could they allow that? How could we not be ready to fight a forest fire of such magnitude as this? What went wrong? You know, if you've been here any time, you know how much I love the Jewish people. And you know what a strong supporter I am of Israel because they're God's people. Not because they do it right all the time or because they're perfect in their governmental decisions or their military practices but because they are chosen by God. I stand in support of Israel. And I'm not their judge. But until the heart is softened from a secular Israel into a spiritual Israel, the land will not be what the Lord promises it to be. Are you saying that God started the fires? You know, at first it was thought to be terrorism. It's not. The most recent thing is they believe the fire started in a dump probably by one of these little water pipes a couple of boys smoking a water pipe the one that Spencer likes to smoke I'm kidding he doesn't there's a whole story there ask Spencer about it later ask him why does he like the water pipe (laughs) it's a great story and Cheryl has pictures but here's the thing here's the thing the land is not going to be what it can be until secular hearts become spirit filled hearts it's the same for us when our hearts are bent on secular things we cannot experience the blessings of God we cannot experience the wonders of knowing Jesus Christ when our hearts are focused on the secular world It's when our hearts are softened up that we become steadfast and spiritual. And that's what's lacking in Israel. And if you go with us, and by the way, we're setting up the trip first week of March 2012. So a year and a half away, and I'm going to be giving you more information. I just talked to the travel agent this morning. I'm getting excited already. 
But we're going to go into this land, and one of the things people see when they get there, to their shock and dismay, is how secular it really is. You go into a mall in Tel Aviv, it's as bad if not worse than any mall in America. Pictures that are up and the things that are going on, it's just like, you, you almost expect, but, but it's Israel! It's Israel! So this, I mean, why isn't everybody wearing a tall black hat and a black robe and, you know, like the Hasidic Jews? It's secular Israel. Do you think that's why God allowed the fire to burn so hot? I don't know. All I know for sure is that until Israel gives its heart to God, it's going to be a hard road. The returning exiles, they see the land ruined. They come back out of Babylon. They're looking around and they're seeing this destroyed, devastated land. What Babylon left behind. And they could have blamed Babylon for it. They could have said it was Nebuchadnezzar and his army. Those guys destroyed our land. Look at what they did. But the psalmist says no. A fruitful land was laid into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. It was our fault. It was our wickedness that caused this to happen. Verse 35 You can almost insert a however here because it says He changes a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. And there He makes the hungry to dwell so that they may establish an inhabited city and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. Also He blesses them and they multiply greatly and He does not let their cattle decrease. Oh, this is marvelous. The historical truth that's played out before our very eyes here. In the 5th century before Christ, this was played out. They came back into the land and it began to bear fruit again. Every time the Jews come back, God begins to bless the land. And it becomes fruitful. And it was amazing. By the time of Jesus, it was said just to be an absolutely beautiful land once again. And then Rome came in. And the land was wiped out again, this time even worse. Literally, note it a fruitful land into a salt waste. Verse 34, Well, Rome salted all of Jerusalem and the surrounding farmlands so that you couldn't even plant there anymore. They salted the land. Trees were cut down across Israel, changing the climate of Israel so that by the time Mark Twain would visit it, he, he saw it as a God-forsaken land as the Jews were driven out and there was no nation of Israel in those days. With the great fire of last week considered to be, again, Israel's Katrina, I'm reminded again, God's pardon is extended, but it needs to be received by Israel. God's pardon remains to be out. It remains out for Israel. It needs to be received. Verse 39, When they are diminished and bowed down, Through oppression, misery, and sorrow, He pours contempt upon princes and makes them wander in a pathless waste. But He sets the needy securely on high away from affliction and makes His families like a flock. The upright see it and are glad, but all unrighteousness shuts its mouth. Who is wise, let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord. And I like that. All unrighteousness shuts its mouth. And it's going to happen. 
You ever get tired of all of the negativity against Christianity, against the church, against godly things by the world? Guess what? All unrighteousness is going to shut its mouth. When Jesus comes, people are going to be blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and in that silence, the words of Jesus will ring true. Matthew eleven nineteen, He says, Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Everything that I have done and do will be seen for what it is. That's why I like throughout this, in all of the choruses, verse 8, 15, 21, and 31, let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. The word wonders there is His wonderful acts. The things He's done. Praise God for those things. Because those things will shut the mouth of the unrighteous. And that day is coming and I believe is soon upon us. So, following 107, it closes out and we go right into Psalm 108. You remember this from Sunday if you were here. It's the Psalm of the Steadfast Heart. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you were not able to be with us. It's a rearrangement of Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. That's the first half of the psalm. And then Psalm 60, verses 5 through 12, is the second half of the psalm, put together like a Reese's peanut butter cup. Two great tastes that go great together, taste great together. And Psalm 108 is just good food for a steadfast heart. Psalm 109. See how quickly we move when we want to? Psalm 109 is a psalm of David, but I warn you before we get into it that we turn now into a dark alley. This is the last of six imprecatory psalms. I just like the word imprecatory. It means a curse. Six psalms in the 150 psalms that are curse psalms, where David calls a curse on his enemies, and this is the last one, and it is by far the darkest. Watch this. O God of my praise... Do not be silent. For they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. This psalm of David is probably another psalm about his struggle in the days of his son Absalom and Absalom trying to overthrow his dad. And possibly, David is writing throughout this psalm about the betrayal of Ahithophel his most trusted counselor turned traitor to Absalom. But it's placed here. Remember the context, the return of the exiles. Placed here in book 5 with these other Psalms of the exiles, though it's written by David, it speaks to the heart and the situation of those who returned from their exile in Babylon. Those words that they have surrounded me with words of hatred. Listen to this, Ezra chapter 4, verse 4. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, the people prayed, Hear, O our God, how we're despised. Return their approach on their own heads. And give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you. For they have demoralized the builders. And you may recall this, but it says in Nehemiah 4.16, From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears and the shields and the bows and the breastplates and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. This was how they rebuilt Jerusalem. Those who were rebuilding the wall... 
And those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and with the other hand holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me and were told by Daniel in Daniel 9.25 that the temple and the wall and the city itself would be rebuilt in days of distress. And they were times of great distress. And so this psalm, written by David, probably about Ahithophel, speaks very well the heart of the people of Israel coming back from Babylon. But the depth and the true meaning of this psalm goes far beyond either David or the exiles. Read on verse 4. In return for my love, they act as my accusers. But I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off in a following generation. Let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And do not let the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off their memory from the earth. Because he did not remember to show loving kindness, but persecuted the afflicted and needy man and the despondent in heart to put to death. He also loved cursing, and so it came to him. And he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. But he clothed himself with cursing as with a garment, and it entered into his body like water and like oil into his bones." Let it be to him as a garment with which he covers himself and for a belt with which he constantly girds himself. Let this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord and of those who speak evil against my soul. The speaker in this psalm is vehemently cursing an individual. Ahithophel? Perhaps Sambalot and Tobiah, the naysayers there in Nehemiah's day? My friends, you may have picked this up. But this is a messianic psalm spoken by the Spirit of Jesus Christ against Judas Iscariot. That's what's going on here. In fact, keep your finger there. Quickly jump over to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And verse 15. It tells us, I'm going to go ahead and read, and if you're turning there, just catch up to me. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there. And he said, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who had become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, literally he hanging himself, 
He burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. So violent, brutal death Judas' suicide was. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, quote, Let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. And, quote, Let another man take his office. Psalm 109. Peter, speaking by the Holy Spirit, tells us it was the Holy Spirit who inspired David to write Psalm 109, not about Ahithophel, not for the exiles, about those who are against them, but about Judas Iscariot. And that's what Psalm 109 is written for and about, against Judas. At the Last Supper, you may recall Jesus said in Mark 14.21, He said, Woe to that man! by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. This is the only person Jesus said that about specifically. It would have been better for Judas not to be born at all. Not to even have existed than to betray Jesus. Later, that same night, Jesus would say in John 17, 12, I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Judas, the son of perdition, or the son of waste. What a waste. What a waste of a human life. (laughs) Paul, by the way, would later apply that same name, son of perdition, to Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. But listen now to the heartache in this psalm. Go back, look at this, verse 4. You can hear Jesus as He says, In return for my love, they act as my accusers. But I am in prayer. Where was Jesus on the night of His betrayal when they came to get Him? He was in prayer. He's there in Gethsemane praying. And they come and they surround Him there. Thus, verse 5, they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Amazing. Even as Jesus was praying, the Sanhedrin was seeking His death penalty. Judas was leading them, the Jewish leaders and the Roman garrison, leading them to pick up Jesus and drag Him into false trials for His death. They found a betrayer in Judas. And so follows the dreadful curse that we read. Look down at verse 8. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. That's what Peter quoted. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. And they would be. Now you might say, reading on, yeah, but the curse goes to his father and his mother before him, and it goes to his children after him. Is that fair? I'll tell you what, there's bitterness in the family line of Judas. There's sin there. There is wickedness and evil in the choice of his parents and in the choices of his children. Because as God very clearly says, the soul that sins will die. The son will not die for the sins of the father. The father is not going to die for the sins of the son. The soul that sins will die. And so when this curse is laid out there for Judas' parents and for his children, guess what? His parents and his children did not choose to receive pardon. This is all part of the life of the son of perdition, the life of Judas that was such an awful waste. By the way, practically speaking, Be careful with your imprecations. Be careful with your curses. 
That jerk, I wish he'd get in an accident cutting me off like that. Be careful. Boy, I hope she gets hers. (laughs) Be careful with your imprecations. Because when we revel in others' misfortunes, we may be turning around and bringing cursing on ourselves. When we sink into bitterness to call down a curse on someone else, that bitterness will, can, infect us. That was Judas's primary problem. And we have a disturbing description of his mentality in verse 17. Look at verse 17 and listen to this. He loved cursing. We learned something about Judas here we never saw before. Or didn't see, at least in the New Testament Scriptures. He also loved cursing, so it came to him. And he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, and it entered into his body like water, like oil into his bones. That describes Judas. What a sorrowful, sad, sick waste of a man. And he chose to be a curser. And so cursing and bitterness and resentment filled him up and soaked in and took over. Man, better to bless than to curse. If you're someone who is blessing people and giving out blessing, you yourself are going to be blessed. But if you're someone who is into cursing and bitterness, you yourself are going to be cursed. Jesus is a blesser of people. Look down in verse 21. But you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your namesake, because your loving kindness is good. Deliver me, for I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. That's how Jesus died, at least medically speaking, of a ruptured heart. So His Spirit, speaking of this long before His death, would take place, saying, my heart is it's tearing. It's rupturing within me. How do we know He died of a ruptured heart? When the spear went into His side by the Roman soldier, blood and water came out. And that is typical when a heart is ruptured. Verse 23 says, I'm passing like a shadow when it lengthens. I'm shaken off like a locust. That, that phrase shaken off in the Hebrew also indicates moving up and down. I'm being shaken as though imagine Jesus on the cross and He would sink down and it would begin to bring all manner of pain in His chest and His arms and His heart. But it at least relieved the pain in His feet for a time but then He'd have to pull up pushing on His feet so that He could breathe again but placing the pain on His feet just so He could get a breath and then He'd sink down up and down and He says, I'm shaking, I'm, I'm like a locust. My knees are weak from fasting. My flesh has grown lean without fatness. I've also become a reproach to them. And when they see me, they wag their head, describing exactly what was going on around the cross. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to Your loving kindness. And let them know, note this, let them know that this is Your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. God is the one who made this happen who organized it, who orchestrated it. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Let them curse, verse 28, but you bless. See, that's Jesus. Let them curse Jesus. 
He is the one who blesses. When they arise, they shall be ashamed. But your servant, oh, your servant shall be glad. And there it is. It's better to bless than to curse. As they were cursing Jesus at Calvary, what did He do? He blessed them all. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He offered the greatest blessing a person can offer. Forgiveness. Luke 23, 34. Verse 29. Let my accusers be clothed with dishonor and let them cover themselves with their own shame as with a robe. With my mouth, I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord. And in the midst of many, I will praise Him. For He stands at the right hand of the needy to save Him from those who judge His soul. Note that. Go back and look. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, Appoint a wicked man over him and let his accuser stand at his right hand. That's what the Sanhedrin were looking for. An accuser. A wicked guy to stand at the right of Jesus and say, He's done this. He's done that. Someone to betray Him. And yet Jesus says at the end, no, it's God who stands at the right hand of the knee. (coughs) When you feel betrayed, when you feel like someone's going head to head with you and accusing you at your right hand, just remember who really stands at your right hand. It's the Lord. God is there. As I read through this, gang, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by several things. Primarily because Jesus, as a Jewish boy, would have studied this psalm. Jesus, whose spirit had inspired David to write the psalm a thousand years before, now as a young boy growing up in a Jewish home, is studying his own words that he gave David to write. Is that mind-boggling? And I wonder what Jesus, as a boy, was thinking when he read and studied Psalm 109. Jesus, as a young man, would have studied through these words again. Before he ever met Judas, Jesus knew he would meet Judas. And when it came time to choose his apostles, I mean, what would that be like? To be Jesus and to know who this guy is and to know what he was going to do, to have already described everything that was going to happen. To look at Judas and say, Want to be on my team? Want to join me here? I'll tell you what, if I knew that about someone sitting in the Bridge Fellowship, I would not ask them to be a shepherd of this fellowship. Jesus did. He knew who Judas was, and He knew what Judas would do. So, was Judas then chosen to betray Christ? Was that the point? Did God knit Judas together in his mother's womb so that he could fulfill this horrific role of the greatest betrayal in history? Was Judas predetermined, with no choice in the matter, to become this great betrayer of Jesus Christ and to fulfill this role? And then not only to betray Christ, but to hang himself in utter dismay over the the deception and the betrayal, and then to go to hell for it. Now, people have tried to work around this one. Theologians have tried to figure it out. Some have proposed that Judas was a victim of his circumstances. You know, he was zealous for Israel, and some think, and they actually say this, Judas just miscalculated. He was trying to force a confrontation so that Jesus would stand up and take his place as king. 
And he never in a million years imagined that Jesus would actually be crucified. He couldn't imagine that. People try to work this around because they just can't see that it's fair that Judas would be chosen for this horrible role. Some teach the intentions of Judas were really what he believed was the right thing to do, but he just blew it. Gang, Jesus discounts that theory completely. Jesus said in John 6, verse 70, Did I not myself choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Early in his ministry, Jesus says, I chose you. One of you. I chose you. One of you is a devil. And John 6.71 says, Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. John tells us in John 12.4 that Judas Iscariot was intending to betray him. And in verse 6 of that chapter, he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Inside into the heart of Judas. He was a thief. A con artist. A sham. Ripping off Jesus throughout three years of ministry. And Jesus knew it. And Jesus chose him. Judas gang was not an unfortunate victim of zealous political aspirations. He was, as Jesus called him, a devil. And the Bible even goes further. It says that after Judas betrayed Jesus and he hung himself, you know what Peter quotes? Acts one twenty five. It says after he hung himself, after this, he turned aside to go to his own place. Well, what's his own place? Hell. A place reserved for the devil and his angels. What are you saying? (laughs) You know there are only two people that Jesus in his lifetime called a devil? Judas and Peter. Judas is a devil. Peter. (laughs) He turned to Peter, Matthew 16.23, and said, Get behind me, Satan! Strong words. I don't think I've ever called anybody Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And Peter, like Judas, betrayed Jesus. He denied Him three times. You might say, yeah, but, but that was Peter. See, Jesus loved Peter. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, those closest three friends. Jesus loved Peter. No doubt, the number of times Peter stuck his foot in his mouth, Jesus just loved this big buffoon. Let me tell you something. The thing that makes the betrayal of Judas so bitter is that Jesus loved Judas. Jesus loved Judas. John 13, verse 1 tells us, Having loved His own who are in the world, He loved them to the end. And you know what He did? He wrapped a towel around His waist and He washed His feet, the feet of Judas. I would have waited until Judas left to do his dastardly deed. Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer that night. Why? Because he loved him. Because he loved all of the guys. Jesus loved Judas. Later that night, when Judas approaches Jesus in the garden, Matthew 26.50, Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you've come to do, or do what you've come for. Literally, friend, What have you come for? 
He looks into the eyes of Judas and he still, in the midst of the betrayal, calls him friend. What have you come for? What are you doing? They came, they laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. Listen, Jesus didn't choose Judas for the role of his betrayer. Well, so was Jesus just blindsided by this? No, he chose Judas. Listen, Jesus chose Judas because it was Judas' only chance at salvation. That's why he asked him to be one of the twelve. That's why he involved Judas. It wasn't so that Judas could play the role of betrayer. No. It was because he loved him so much that Jesus was Judas' only chance to not fulfill the role that he would fulfill. Get this. Jesus reached down into the darkest place of man's denial to the place of sinful, vile betrayal. And it's there that Jesus offers pardon. Pardon. And in Christ, pardon is granted every man, every woman. Pardon is granted. But it must be accepted. That's why Peter went on to serve Jesus with the rest of his life. Because he accepted the pardon. That's why Judas hung himself and is condemned for all eternity because he rejected the pardon. And I guess the question that we have to answer ourselves is what will we do with the pardon of Jesus Christ? Will we accept it? And if you have accepted His pardon tonight, then let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Father, we praise You for Your pardon. God, if you can pardon such a vile person, someone who has chosen bitterness and cursing instead of blessing, someone like Judas, how much more will you pardon anyone who comes to you? God, I've been praying this for seven years, and I will pray it again tonight. May we be proclaimers of your pardon. God, may we not let a day go by without telling somebody what the pardon of Jesus Christ is really all about. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us as you do. In Jesus' name, amen.